it's establishing a strong team. It's establishing trust within your team and within the business collectively, because without those elements, I don't see how you could be successful, especially with your partnerships with engineering, IT, uh, in our case, product development teams. Those relationships are, are critical. And if you're not able to influence and partner and, you know, support, then I, I just don't see how you can claim success. From Exabeam, this is the new CISO, a show about the people who lead IT security teams, the challenges they face, and how they overcome them. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe to hear our new episodes first. I'm Steve Moore, and today I speak with Adam Curry, CSO at HCL Software. Adam started his career 27 years ago working the night shift as a mainframe operator. He worked his way up from the SOC to the CISO at a company he loved. However, less than a year later, he left to create a new program from the ground up. He joins us now to share how he builds trust within his team, his organization, and himself. Personal and professional growth doesn't come easy. So how can a security program shake the stigma of being a necessary evil? When is the right time to challenge yourself and, as a leader, when should you foster an environment where it's safe to fail? Adam, thank you so much for being here and being on the show. For the uninitiated, uh, if you would please introduce yourself. Who are you? Hi, Steve. Thanks for, for having me. Uh, my name is Adam Curry. I'm the CSO for HCL Software. And how long have you been doing that? So I've been with HCL for about two and a half years. But recently, I moved into the CSO position back about eight, eight nine months ago. So really new. So eight, nine months. So, but what did you do before that? I, I know you're two and a half, three years-ish. At HCL, what were you doing? Previously at HCL, I was the head of the uh, cybersecurity operations, security engineering, and security architecture. I was going to say, so you are near and dear to my heart in that regard ran and built security operation centers. Before that, I worked in them, but I also was in charge of a security architecture myself for a period of time. So that's all of that is both very frustrating, but also very rewarding. I absolutely love the SOC space, obviously. Just in general, how do you think coming from that background, because not everyone who's running a SOC or running security architecture becomes a CISO. I think that, that a lot of times people that do that are so hooked into that, that they stay, uh, which is all good. But you've sort of evolved out of that. How do you think that painted uh, your role as a CISO? Like, what were the strengths and maybe some of the weaknesses that came from that, right? Because those are very specialized, very knowledge-heavy positions. Well, I, I started my career some 27 years ago as a technologist. I mean, I started as a mainframe operator for an old IBM mainframe shop data center and had progressed throughout my career through the IT side of the house, really focused on the end user support from desktop support to, you know, network engineering to enterprise applications into systems and services, and then all the way up to, you know, managing. It was head of technology operations for Bloomberg. And when I came over to HCL Technologies, I brought with me a breadth of experience around the inner workings of both the technology, but also how our, how our user base consumed them and the criticalities with that. And so 
one thing that I firmly believe is within this business, you need to be able to balance. I mean, our job is to balance, you know, the the effectiveness and productivity of the tools and the systems that we provide, but also making sure that they're secure, obviously. I mean, that we're not putting our business through any undue risk, either risk of a security breach or risk of imposing so much control that our, our, our user base can't function correctly or efficiently. And so that point of view, that perspective is what carried me through the security operations and engineering side of the house and what has ultimately led me into the uh, CSO piece. So let's go all the way back to you. I didn't realize you were, so you were a mainframer. What were you doing there? We're going to go back to some of the other stuff you said, but you, so you and I are about the same age then, roughly. That was, I went and did web infrastructure. So really trying to take the mainframe and put it on the internet to facilitate loan application processing and uh, how to initiate the loan, originate the loan. But I was never, I never worked on the mainframe. You know, I was connected to CICS regions and DB2 and all of my stuff I was supporting had to, what were you doing on the mainframe? Well, so I actually started back in, as my kids like to say, the late 1900s, which makes me feel really old. But I started off, my first job was a tape librarian. So we essentially would monitor a screen that if there's any jobs that required a data set and the data set wasn't already in on tape in one of these big old storage tech tape silos or whatever, or if it was on reel to reel, which now I'm dating myself even more, we had to go and grab those tape and mount them. And this was an after school job for me that I really just, you know, I was really impressed by the technology and loved it. And, you know, this is what I wanted to do for a career. And, and so I started taking some classes and learning more about mainframe operations and learning about JCL codes. And, you know, again, the first job was to monitor all the batch processing that happened on the, on, on the mainframe. And, and if a job upended, you know, we'd look at, you know, obviously programmers would put restart instructions and all that good stuff on there. If that didn't work, if it was a data contention, I mean, very, you know, these are all things that you typically don't come into challenges with today, right? Like data contention typically doesn't become an issue today in today's world. But if that data's on a tape somewhere, then obviously only one job can have it at a time. So, yeah, these were the things that we kind of did just starting off as a mainframe operator. So basic coding language for JCL, SAS, things like that. And, you know, if we couldn't fix a job ourselves, then we were waking the programmer up, you know, in the middle of the night to get them to fix it. Yeah, there's a lot of middle, middle of the night type stuff. And one thing that people may not realize, many of the listeners probably do, but some of the, the newer folks may not know is that batch processing and depending on what you were doing, it may run for hours. And when it's running for hours, it may run for hours at night. So were you night shift or did you, were, did you work? What, what, what were your hours? So I started off in, when I moved into the mainframe world, not the table librarian, but when I moved into the mainframe world, I was, I was night shift and I was newbie. You know, I got the, the worst shift possible and where most of the batch processing was taking place too, because a lot of it was payroll and orders because we worked for a grocery retail organization. So a lot of ordering, a lot of order fulfillment, all that kind of stuff was, was processing in the back end. And to your point, it could run for hours and then fail at the last step. So when you had to restart that job, you know, sometimes you could restart it at a certain step. Sometimes you had to start the job, depending on how well the coding was done, you'd have to start the job all the way from the beginning. So it just depend. But yeah, it was, I started off as the, the graveyard and then moved into swing shift before I left that, that particular function. Yeah, that's, uh, it's interesting because those positions typically had shifts and role that I had, there was no shift. You worked days and then you were on call, which was even worse uh, in many ways. So that's interesting. Uh, and then you said desktop support, which as a sidebar, working in uh, as a security leadership, team builder, program builder, 
some of the best people I've ever been able to work with in information security had a background in desktop support. And there's a lot of reasons for that. Uh, if you're not recruiting from that area and you have staffing issues, uh, you should be recruiting from there. You should be mentoring those folks. Even if there's not a job opening, get them trained up, get them familiar, show them that there's other opportunities. But my question for you is, based on my statement, what do you think desktop support teaches you in terms of being a, or readies you for, in terms of being a great security person? I think that the first and foremost is that you understand the perspective of how the end users are operating and kind of where their pain points will be. You know, under, understanding that and, and what potential security controls or behaviors or whatever the case may be, you know, how, how to best interact with the end user community. Because at the end of the day, given all your security tools and all your capability, your, your defensive depth and, and everything else that you have out there, your end users are really going to be the ones that are going to provide the most value or the potential biggest risk, right? So that's where training comes into place. But being able to communicate with them in an effective manner and, and understand and lead with empathy when you're working with end users, I think is a huge value add when getting the end users to work with security more willingly, more openly, seeing them as a value partner and not just someone who's going to you know, get upset or, you know, email them if they emailed a file that they shouldn't have or clicked on a link that they should have or whatever the case may be. You know, we want them to openly approach us and work with us and see us as a, a, a partner that they can engage with us readily and easily. And I think that desktop experience provides a lot of value in that space. Absolutely. I mean, they're typically wonderful eyes and ears. They're typically very patient. They oftentimes know everyone. Or, you know, many times if you're desktop support, you're assigned to a certain group. There's a gentleman, Reggie, I worked with ages ago now, uh, but he was executive support. There was a special desktop support that did exec support. So he knew everybody. And so he came over and worked in the SOC and uh, as an analyst and was fantastic because who, who gets hit the most or in many cases, right? And, and oftentimes, even if there's a response process, it's not always well written in there for exec support, right? There's different rules that apply often. So I absolutely love that as, a, as an experience set, the patience that's required, but also having that in your back pocket as, you know, as a place to recruit and, and also to, to think back to your point. If I make these changes, what's the effect to the employees and their end user computing experience? Exactly. No, I, I completely agree. And and even in being on you know, my pre-security days, but in my IT days, you know, that was a common path, a career path of progression that we would often try to make happen if there was an interest, because you're right, there's multiple value. You're able to take that existing infrastructural knowledge, right, and knowledge of the business and translate that in, in a very effective way. So I agree. Yeah. So Let's go a little bit back. So again, you've you've been CISO for roughly eight or nine months. You've been with the company for two and a half, three years. You were at Bloomberg prior for about five years. Is that correct? That's correct. And tell me a little bit about, and for the listener, the reason why we do this is you may know some of the guests that we have on the show, but you may not. Most of the cases, we don't know these folks, right? You may, you may know their name. You may have seen them speak at an event. But the reason why we spend the first part of the show on the past and the past experiences of the guests is because we're not famous. And 
I think it's important for the listener to connect uh, or more easily connect with the guest because we all come from different backgrounds and you may relate to or not relate to or find it curious that background. So I personally, at this stage, I love the fact that he came from the sock. But I ask all of this for the reasons, just for the benefit of the listener, because it's, it's points of connection. It's how we remember one another and understanding the past, right? It's the, it's the intro to this story as the, to this leader. And so just, I don't know if I've ever explained that live on the show, but I think this, is, this journey is important because a couple of things are going to come out here. I don't want to go back into. So Bloomberg, five years, CISO at the end. One interesting thing to go from CISO at the end of Bloomberg and then to fold in to running the SOC and then back to the CISO. Is that accurate? That is accurate. That's fascinating. Let's spend a second on that. And I want to go back into the, the larger, the blowout of Bloomberg. How does that feel? Like, was that part of the plan? Was it just, you're going to roll with the punches? Was it part of a bigger picture? Because some guys, some people may not want that. Can you share about that? I can. Yes. So I've learned that, that life doesn't necessarily go to a road, uh, as planned as like a roadmap, right? And one of the things, one of the biggest lessons I've learned in my life is that your biggest opportunities and your biggest chances for advancement typically lead down a path you don't necessarily think you'd go down. A good example of this is, and what really kind of started my elevation in my career at, at Bloomberg per se, is that at one point, you know, I'd gone through the whole end user support model and then that work and that, that job. And I moved into more of the, the back-end network, you know, applicate, enterprise applications, and cloud, et cetera. And at one point, I was asked to take over our tier one, tier two service desk. And I'll be honest, it was something I had no desire to go back into that space. I knew what that space was like. It was not by any means wanting to go into that space. But it gave me my first opportunity to really take on a full-on management role. And I did that. and I looked at that organization and, and how they were operating and saw some opportunities for improvement and had a vision and was able to execute upon that vision and was successful. And and even though it's not what I originally wanted to do, I have to say that that step is what really got me to where I am today. And I may very well just be a, you know, a network or system admin if I had not taken that leap, so to speak. From that point on, I always try to evaluate, but never question a path or a decision that may have not been top of mind, right? So within Bloomberg, I kind of moved up and gotten a lot of opportunities with that organization. And really within Bloomberg, the culture there is, in my opinion, very amazing. And I really, really love the people I worked with there. And it was a tough call to leave. I recently moved into the CISO role there and the organization you know, it was very mature in a lot of different aspects, but obviously always growing, always, you know, looking at the next new thing. And we were just, you know, had started our cloud journey or halfway through our cloud journey at that point in time from certain aspects of the business. And, you know, it's it's one of those things where the CISO that was at Bloomberg, who I replaced when he left, he went to HCL Software and said, hey, I, you know, there's this opportunity I'd like to talk to you about. And it was really an opportunity to build something from the ground up. And I felt like the best way for me to immerse myself into the security world is to really kind of, you know, go that greenfield approach. And it wasn't entirely greenfield. There's a lot of things in place already, but to really look at it and start to focus in on not only a, a strategic vision, but the execution of that vision in all aspects. So it, it was something, and we're still going through this to today, but that whole from point to point experience was very valuable to me. 
And so that ultimately was the driver for me to move. So you are in, you have the CISO title at Bloomberg because there's a couple pieces here. And I think this is important to cover for the listener. And I think exploring it is, I find it fascinating. The goal may or may not have been to become CISO at Bloomberg. In fact, it sounds like maybe that the, the person that was in charge left you were the heir apparent or the best option that they had or the easiest option, saying very plainly, and I'm, and I'm no disrespect, but that was if a good CISO is going to have a, an in-house replacement ready, if nothing else for a temporary fill-in, like you, you should have that. So you take that. But what I think is interesting, then you have that locked in. And yet the connection to the new opportunity, and this is my lens on it, which could very well be wrong, but that CISO leaves becomes CISO someplace else. And you're like, I trust that person enough where I will go take a slightly less fancy title to go move my career, either based on opportunity, connection to the leader, or both. I think that's an important lesson as well. And, and you didn't cover some of that, but is any of that true or am I off? No, it's, it's very true. I would have not even considered leaving if I did not trust the person who was asking me to come over. So that was a huge a very huge data point in my decision making. And you're right, it was, I mean, I listen, I still interviewed for the position at, at Bloomberg and I had worked very closely with the security organization up to that point. So I was very familiar with them. We, we worked very hard to implement security into everything that we were doing within the technology space. So it was not an unfamiliar, obviously, area for, for me. But, and I went through the process I interviewed and, and was awarded that job. But like I said, when I had to weigh all the decisions, all the data points for that decision, it was, you know, again, leaving an organization that I had a lot of good friends at, right? A lot of relationships that I still keep up to this day and have a lot of respect for and really love that organization. But sometimes, you know, ultimately I got to a point where if we don't push ourselves to be uncomfortable into a new opportunity, then how do we ever grow? And I didn't want that uncomfortableness to be the reason why I didn't take the opportunity. You bring up a really good point. There's been several points in my life where that uncomfortable feeling was, was glaring related to some kind of opportunity. I can think of five or six times that in the moment, maybe looking back now, it's not that big of a deal, but in the moment, it's huge. And you're thinking, damn it, I don't feel, I, in fact, I feel ill. It's so difficult. But my father taught me this, and it so far has been pretty true that if it makes you feel uncomfortable, it's probably the thing you should do. Meaning, if the discomfort in the change, not if it makes you uncomfortable because it's something wrong or bad, but I mean, if it's something that's, that, that makes you nervous, you should jump on that and take that opportunity. And I'm, I'm glad to hear that that's, a, that's something that you've done. The other thing is it's, you know, you said you just, how long were you CISO at the end of Bloomberg? Let me get that data point. Like you interviewed for it. That interview process, I'm sure was long. How long were you in that role before you're like, hey, see you later? So I can't recall exactly. It, it wasn't a very long period of time. It, it may have been shy of a year, but it wasn't a very long time. And there were still some technology projects that were lingering that I was still kind of had my toes dipped in both ends of the pool. So it's one of those things where I was still engaged on a lot of the same fronts that I originally was engaged in. And that organization too, I will add, was again, as I mentioned, they were mature in a lot of spaces. And that that organization had a very talented 
pool of resources and leaders within it. Hey, the other thing to think about too is, to your point, is how well prepared are they to absorb the loss? And, and if they're mature, and you mentioned the great culture, they were probably able to roll forward without a hitch. The reason why I, I move into all this is not to get into the details of your, well, it is to get into the details, I guess, of your personal career, but because so many people are faced with these same points of concern and opportunities. And many people I see, even well-seasoned people, go into vapor lock, which is a, a condition of an internal combustion engine that you don't want, where it effectively seizes up. And so exploring this, I think, is incredibly important. And I, I love it. I absolutely love it. And I love the next piece, which you already covered, though, but going in, hey, I'm the CISO, but you know what? There's this other opportunity. It's time to grow. I'm a little bit uncomfortable. There's other things to go learn. I'm going to go run engineering, architecture, and the SOC. While the guy I used to work for takes CISO. But wait a minute, he's not the CISO anymore. What happened? Tell us what happened there with him. So I think it was another another situation where, and again, I don't want to speak for him directly, um, you know, but I think there was an opportunity that had arrived that he couldn't really pass up and it was his next step for his career. And which is all what we try to do, right? I mean, again, I people will leave an organization for, a, you know, really probably maybe three or four major contributing factors. One, they don't like the company, right? They want to go work somewhere else. They, they don't get good job satisfaction. Two, maybe there's a, some family or situational, something happens that, that requires them to look for another career. And three, it's, it's the job growth, right? They want to either try something completely new or they're ready for that next step. And sometimes, you know, that next step is not available within their organization. And so they'll start looking externally. And so, you know, when you look at those different options, again, you kind of have to weigh what is critical to you as a person, what's critical and important to your family, and what's, you know, how do you continue to be a professional and support the business? And I, I think for most people, all these things come into a factor as a data point in making this decision. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, if you, if you are running with, I say running with an old basketball term, but if you are running with, fast mover, uh, highly energized, capable people, they are going to receive many opportunities uh, and it's going to be ongoing and some are planned, some are part of a plan and others are just surprises. And so I think it's, you know, if you run with the right people, you're going to get good, you're going to get some bad surprises too, but you're going to get a lot of good surprises, a uh, good, good sort of out of the blue opportunity. And that's very likely what happened, but it's, reinforces the point of, of who are you running with? It does. And so you keep that in mind, both from your personal interactions, but also for your team, right? I often will tell my team, listen, if, if you are exploring new opportunities or thinking about exploring new opportunities, I would rather help my team make a transition even out of the organization. I mean, obviously I want to keep good, strong talent, but I also don't want us to do it. I don't want to keep it, you know, at a level that it can't, they can't become who they're meant to become. And so I always tell my team, if this is a conversation, I will support you and I will help you in every way possible. And, you know, and we can have a more mature and equitable conversation around that, right? I think that's way more important than this kind of fear of, well, I can't say anything because I don't want them to let me go or, you know, I'm not sure or I'm not ready or whatever the case may be. And I just, that's, it's not what's in the best interest of your team and you need to support that. So I think that's a very important component of these types of conversations. And I think that they will know 
uh, to add to that. The way you act and the way you care about them and the way you behave every other day of the year that's outside of that conversation, meaning they'll know if you're cool and really care about them as a human first and their development. And I think that it's, it's those that, that maybe don't quite so much and only have the conversation about growth when that 11th hour is there already, right? To say, one of the things I used to say is my job is to make you expensive. I want to make you expensive to yourself, meaning highly valued. I want to make you expensive in the eyes of the market and in the eyes of this company. And an expensive sounds outlandish, but it's really saying valuable, right? So we're going to work on the most difficult problems possible. We are going to develop ourselves in a way that we don't only have success, but also that we can articulate it well. So we're going to communicate success very well. But as part of that, to know that, that it's this open, open dialogue, to your point. I want to shift a, a little bit, because you told me you're, you're a technical leader, and the statement we had in an earlier chat, you said you love the challenge of improving yourself. Now you're, not, you're not a new CISO, but you're still you know, new to this, this role within this company. You've done it in the past. But is there anything, I'll say maybe it's a little unfair, but newer, newer opportunity, is there anything you're working on uh, for specifically to you, meaning, hey, I love a challenge. I want to improve. I'm a tech person, but I'm working on a certain skill set. Is there anything that you are, any, anything you're trying to add or get better at right now in this moment? So it, for me, it's a constant battle to stay out of the weeds. Um, as, as a technologist, I gravitate to that. But I also fully am self-aware that that's not my role now. That's not my function. I've made, my, I've made the decision to move past that. But when you enjoy something, you sometimes have a challenge to avoid it. So that, that's something that's constant challenge for me. And again, I, I try to remind my team to keep me out of the weeds as much as possible. But it is something that, you know, I listen, I love technology and I like to geek out. And, you know, there's, there's times where we'll see things and say, wow, this is really, really cool. Um, even, you know, times where I'll start playing around with, with, you know, like I said, we're testing out Chromebooks right now and I've been playing with that. So, but as long as it doesn't become a distraction and the biggest thing is that you don't want to do is you want to make sure that you're empowering and enabling your team. And this is why it's so critical, I think, for senior leaders to do this, right? You need to one, create an environment of safe to fail, right? Because failure is our biggest teacher. Obviously you have to mitigate that. You have to have some controls around because you don't want to cause major impacts to the business. And failing around security isn't necessarily the best place to fail, but at the same time, you still can't learn unless you've created a safe place to fail. Because as long as it's not out of malice or neglect or doing something that we just flat out should not have been doing, then it's still a teaching moment. It's still value gained from that experience. And again, this is broad range, right? This is anywhere from, you know, I accidentally wiped someone's laptop, which depending on the person could be, you know, pretty pretty huge, or I shut down a whole, you know, isolated server that now impacted the whole data center is not functioning for whatever reason. If that did happen, there would be probably bigger questions around availability that I may ask. But that being said, these things do happen and we don't necessarily want to focus on the negative or trying to find someone to blame. But again, being able to shield your team and give them that atmosphere of, you know, again, you're not being reckless, but you're not afraid to do something or take action because if you are, then now you get into that vapor lock that you talked about where, and that inaction can be more of a risk than taking action, even if it's the wrong action. 
yeah, if you want to see a mediocre security team, look at one, you know, find one that's indifferent to what's going on. And that is on the flip side, my take, and I've said this on the show before, but I'll repeat it. I think it's so important. We need people, we need defenders who are willing to take risks and innovate, to be curious, to explore. If we yell at them when they make a mistake or fail, you will beat that out of them spiritually, and you will end up with an indifferent garbage level team. And so it's your job, I believe, our collective jobs as leaders to, as you said, own that failure. And so my question to you to build on that, a lot of people say, you know, I want to make a a certain environment, a certain culture. How far, this is a tough question, this is a difficult question, but how far are you, Adam, willing to go, I'm putting you on the spot, to own the failure? Meaning, There's political consequences inside of many big organizations when there's outages. People fear outage more than they do a breach in many cases, right? You will get your ass chewed. So what is that? I mean, this is a tough one. What's your recommendation on what that should really mean? What's the extreme example of ownership of failure for a leader, for a security leader, for for a manager, for a director, for CISO? That is a tough question, right? I mean, listen, I, my perspective is that, you know, it's my job to communicate to senior leadership and shield my team, right? So I get the data points. If it's a situation where we could have done something better or something different, then we communicate that and say, here's the positive out of it. This is what we've learned to do. You know, we'll look to see if there is any, you know, opportunity we could have done something different in the moment and all that good stuff. And that's part of your normal RCA or post-incident review or whatever you want to call it. But at the end of the day, I typically don't provide the details of the individuals involved when I'm reporting up. And so, I, again, I try to shield that as much as possible. And luckily, I've never gotten into a situation, thank God, where I've been grilled to that level of detail where somebody's been out for blood. I mean, most leaderships in organizations, their leaders themselves, they've gotten to a place, and I hope this rings for true for all of the listeners, but they've gotten to a place where there's got to be some level of common sense that's instilled. and that. That, that we can have honest and productive conversations and not out of emotion. And if I see it starting to go towards emotion, I try my best to def- diffuse that. Again, I have not been in a situation where I've really had to say, this happened by this person or things like that. And if it did, if I was pushed on that, I would say, then you can blame me. Because ultimately, it's, it is my, I am the one who is accountable for that action. Correct. And I, what's interesting, first off, I want to say that I think it's an excellent answer. I applaud you for picking fantastic organizations with with great culture. I will say my past, uh, I have not been so fortunate. I've had companies where it's extremely toxic and they want to sort of aim guns inside and aim them aim them at, you know, junior level people. And it's not an easy thing. Uh, the only thing that sort of helps you with that is is the things you mentioned. Keep it, try to keep it civil keep names out of it, uh, understand that you represent the program and have the ownership and responsibility for, for the failures that can occur. But I think the other important thing, if you're in a toxic environment, and some of the listeners will smile as I say this, is that the, the long-term effect of that toxic environment leads to certain groups 
picking on other groups. And this sounds silly, but it, it will it evolves slowly but strongly over time. And so you'll have a certain area that's like, oh, they're always causing problems, or oh, they're just not very smart. Or, oh, you know what? There's an outage call right now. It's probably security's fault. It's probably user access. It's probably the provisioning team's fault. Or it's probably the endpoint security team's fault or whatever, right? And so as a security leader, you've got to work like hell to get understanding and visibility and evidence and data and be a strong presence to push back against that and bring that from a heavy level of toxicity down to a lower level. And it just takes time and grit. An extreme example. It really does. And, and there's a couple of things that you mentioned that I wanted to touch on here around this topic. And, and one of the things from my personal experience, and I'm going to air a little bit of dirty laundry to, to whoever's listening, which probably will be a lot of people. I actually learned this experience very early in my career where I was a network administrator and I was playing around with a product that I thought was honestly a a monitoring product, was not no management in place. And I made a change. Again, I was testing. I thought it was innocuous, didn't really realize what was happening. And I ended up deleting all the lookup zones and DNS for a company that obviously brought the company down on its knees for about five hours. I was going to say, so hold on, let me, let me stop you there. So for those that aren't familiar, what when you delete all the lookup zones, Adam, what happens? Nothing with DNS. You can't, you, you can't reach anything. Your network connectivity essentially goes down because when you're trying to connect to a URL, it doesn't know how to resolve the IP. Correct. And the only way around that is if you have host files, and this takes us back, but literally notepad files like host files, it'll do that for you, basically negating the value of DNS. Yeah. So essentially, and this is why a lot of companies too will also, you know, if you're leveraging your your external DNS through a vendor, you may want multiple vendors, right? That's a redundancy. But anyways, I learned because our CIO at the time was very much pointing fingers, you know, and, and that person actually ended up losing their job and a new CIO came and we had a long conversation. He says, okay, you learned your lesson. We're never going to talk about this again. But for a good six months, I did not know if I was going to have my job or not. It was it was left in this kind of unpending state. And everybody on my team went to bat for me. They all reached out to the CIO, said this was an honest mistake. We all could have made this mistake. Everybody was great, but the leadership there was not the correct leadership. And by the way, this had nothing to do with, with his departure, by the way. But the new CIO came in and taught me a very, very valuable lesson, which is Let's move on. We can't harp on this. We got to close this. We got to move on. You learn something. We all learned something. It was great. It was, yeah, it was bad. It was out five hours, but the business didn't break. It didn't stop. It stopped five hours, but it didn't go out of business is my point. So, you know, at the end of the day, we got to keep things in perspective. And so that's a very, very important lesson that I learned early in my career that I also keep close to my heart anytime a situation like this even comes remotely close to that situation. Hey, it's good experience. It's helpful when you, it's interesting because your background is not only technical, but well, not only from a security perspective, but I didn't start my career in InfoSec either. I was in development support, IT ops, and then moved over. So having these sorts of experiences, I think is very helpful. I think you see more often these days where people start in InfoSec. And what is beneficial, I think, if you're outside of InfoSec is you've had the opportunity to build and break and repair and fix a lot of stuff in general in IT ops, right? And you learn a lot and you have these experiences, which then the fact that you broke this 
it affects the way you lead many years later today. That's an important thing. I want to shift gears to something that when we spoke last time, we talked about kind of a learning area, which was how to build a brand. And one of the things you talked about is sort of this value add statement, kind of purpose statement, not really a charter necessarily, but I think this is a thing that many leaders struggle with and and even subordinates, you know, sort of manager, director, team lead level. Can you talk a little bit about what that is at a high level and then why is that important? Why would an organization, why would a CISO or the components that make up the frameworks, is there an exercise to go through that? Is that an ongoing thing? What's the relationship of that sort of branding? What's the relationship to that and sort of the relationship with non-technical areas? I know I, I asked a very big set of questions there, but let's go into just building a brand. Why is that important? Well, first I can tell you, I haven't quite figured out the execution part of this. And it's going to be like everything else, trial and error, right? But the reason why I feel personally that it's very important is, you know, you mentioned that you made a statement earlier about how interacting with, you know, other other teams and like there's this perception, oh, security probably broke something, right? Or for anybody who has read the Phoenix Project, you know, there's this mindset of the CISO is trying to keep everybody out in orange judge, uh, jumpsuits or deploying something that it did actually break. and you know, it, it's there's at times this perception within organizations that security, albeit necessary, are a necessary evil. And that makes it even more and more challenging for us to engage. And so changing that perception and, and molding it into a true value-add statement and a value-add organization and, and somebody the business wants to actually engage with proactively to you know, look at solving issues or engaging, you know, at the the inception of an idea so we could do true security by design or data privacy by design, I think is, is very helpful and very critical for success. As a software development organization, obviously, the security of our, of our products is top priority for us, right? It's something that is in line with the capabilities and functionality of the product because obviously security and having secure products is it's a growing maturity model that all of our consumers, our, the corporations and businesses out there are getting more and more mature in their security questionnaires or their requirements, right, for the products that they're leveraging in their own enterprise. Nobody wants to be in the news for a data breach. Nobody wants that reputational impact and their stocks to drop or whatever the case may be. So we really want to drive that partnership to be an equal business partnership and again, a value add, because that's how we draw the business to engage us versus us trying to engage the business. It's, it's interesting. One of the best things I did in my prior life, and it was a complete accident. Well, there had been, there had been a breach, but after that, there was increased scrutiny by the people that bought our services and the sales teams were having more difficulty sort of selling. And so it just so happened that one of the chief salespeople was in my building and we kind of ran across one another and, and this person wanted sort of executive additional help. So there was a, a you know, security risk, third-party risk program, but it's the same thing you're describing, meaning there was the process that existed, but he was wanting a little more. And, but the benefit out of this, after I had that person's trust is not just some clown that would ruin a call with a, with a big opportunity, right? People trying to close business. 
I could include that person. I've talked about this in the past, but I would include them on emails when I was trying to build something or, or garner support. And I'd say, hey, you know what? You're asking about this. The buying, you know, the, the, the addressable market is asking for this and he's receiving those questions. And, but we lack that. So rather than in old days when people used to fib and sort of make up language in a questionnaire answer, say, no, we're, let, let me build that. And I would tell him, I said, all I need you to do when I copy you on the email is just say, hey, this is a good idea. And when the person who's the VP of making money for a company says, that's a good idea, the customer's asking for that, you pretty much get to do whatever you want. Taking it back to you, you told me that some of the things I find this interesting, customers are getting more in tune with security, but they're also getting a little more demanding. They're asking for things, and these are your words, asking about hunting and honeypots. Well, that's, that's fascinating, but, but that's an opportunity, too, for you. No, it is. And, and one of the things that, you know, uh, part of this effort that we're working on. So, so obviously, we do have security professionals within our organization at the leadership level that, that do engage in these customer calls and support deal closures. And we're actually piloting a very dedicated role for this. And, and their, their function is to solely work with the external facing, you know, customer, partner, et cetera building white papers, engaging with customers uh, around the security of our products, and also understanding what's going on within the marketplace, right? What are we seeing in trends from our customers and questions and concerns? But yes, we're seeing more and more demands for things, which it's a good thing and it's a bad thing because you still need to, I mean, you can't do one-offs for everybody, right? So how do you establish a consistent baseline that's scalable? And that scalable baseline is, you know, and, and try to go again, to some extent, you have to manage cost, obviously, and also be able to provide the best services to our customers as possible. And so, it's, again, it's that culmination of looking at what we can provide our customers and doesn't, you know, obviously run our, our operational costs through the roof compared to how many customers are asking for it. So, one of the things we're looking at is how do we track deal closures and revenue that's directly tied or related to some type of security requirement, whether it be a certification, you know, third-party attestation, whether it be some type of security monitoring um, capabilities, like you said, like, you know, that we've been asked about honeypots and they're getting more detail around our EDR AV solutions and, and asking very pointed questions. So how do we, again, balance on both sides of that to have the most effective and efficient response and capability? So you, you said a lot there that's super valuable. So the first is avoiding one-offs, which I think is super important. You don't want to chase that. It'll be death by a thousand cuts. But I think having a relationship with the sales team to know like, hey, look, this is kind of a one-off. We need to kind of manage this a little differently. But to your point, what are the commonalities which may then influence your your next budget cycle? It, it definitely. It's where do we make these investments, right? So if we have, you know, one or two customers asking for FedRAMP, is that, uh, you know, obviously going FedRAMP certification is a very significant proposition. So how do we work with sales to ensure that that investment, you know, what are our targets? How many customers do we have to onboard, you know, by such and such date? And how do we track to make sure that we're sticking with, you know, that we're actually meeting that investment targets versus, you know, not. So that relationship is not unlike any other relationship is that we have to, again, work with the business to find the best path forward. It can't be just this, well, we want you to do X, Y, and Z. Yeah. 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 No, it's a very rich conversation. It's very valuable. And the other point you said is, uh, aligning what the effort you're putting into your program, the benefit received via it answering or being a really a selling point or a feature 
that is respected and desired by the buying market, meaning you're tying revenue received opportunities, pipe, whatever that might be, into uh, your language of your security program. And, you know, it'd be interesting, you know, just like there's a quarterly deal deck that sales would have to have that for your security program. And now you are speaking in the currency of the business. It's not, and that's, <laughs> it's difficult to do, but that's, you know, to even have a slide of logos, right? Here are the main deals, right? Visuals, incredibly important. And we do that today. You know, that's part of our MBR process. So we specifically have a deck tied to revenue generation or deal closer support or whatever, you know, we want to phrase it. But another element to that too is how do you capitalize on those capabilities that, you know, how do we help or enable our sales organization and our partners to better capitalize on capabilities that they may not be fully aware of, right? So the first conversation is always going to be with the customer is always going to be with sales. So how do we provide as much security and related information to them upfront so that now we're distinguishing ourselves within the market? So creating the white papers, doing the, the sales education, all of these are going to be very, in my opinion, critical and, and valuable elements. So again, our sales organization, albeit won't have the entire security conversation, but they are armed with the data points to say, hey, this is why our organization is, is a good choice for you. I think thematically, many people that are in a security position don't think about how the business makes money. And, you know, with very rare exception, if you have a security job, there's probably a job somewhere else that sells something. And it's amazing to me the chasm between the thinking of the security person and the lack of knowledge around how that company makes money to then ultimately give you your check and your bonus and or profit sharing or whatever it might be. So that's that's doing all you can to tie that together uh, is really important. Starting like five years ago, I used to speak mainly to CISOs and I would ask, how many of you have a relationship with your VP of sales? And it was funny. I would be in sometimes room, you know, 50 people, 100 people, and very few hands would go up. I see it changing. But this entire conversation, what we're sort of unpacking is super valuable and, and worthy of consideration. Say, do you even report on it? How is it part of your currency? A lot of people want to talk about being valuable to the business, but they don't actually do anything to support it or do very little. They don't, or they don't celebrate it. They don't articulate it in the form of a deck and that kind of thing. I think it's, it's coming more increasingly critical too, because when it comes around to budget time, Right. And, you know, given certain economic downturns or whatever the case may be, because it all ebbs and flows, right? There's times where we have higher budgets than other days and other years we have lower budgets. But I think being able to draw that revenue line, right, or that impact revenue line also helps with the budget conversation, right? And the budget story, because you're showing a more direct correlation as opposed to just pure overhead. And security budgeting has always been a challenging (laughs) element. Yes, yes, yes. It can change rapidly and it's an ongoing sort of fight, especially in an organization where you are tied in software development. There's other sort of costs that go into that, that other variables that are sometimes difficult. You may be playing catch up than just what I would consider standard operational uh, security items. So yeah, you have to be, you will, you will perish if you don't have a handle on that. So one of the things, Adam, I want to ask is, most of the guests, I don't think, have done very many podcasts. I, I meant to ask, and I didn't ask this before. Is this your first, or do you do podcasts and speaking often? 
So this is my second podcast. My first podcast, uh, thankfully, was not published to the public. It was part of a curriculum uh, class at Georgetown University. So this is my second one doing that. I, I'm not a huge fan of public speaking. I can tell you I, I had, you know, one of the things we talked about earlier was pushing yourself to kind of do things that are uncomfortable, put yourself in uncomfortable positions. And this was a perfect example of that. You know, I had a lot of uh, hesitation about doing the podcast, you know, coming in as a new CISO to the HCL software organization and, and having some time with it at, at Bloomberg, you know, you still kind of get hit with that imposter syndrome. You still kind of get hit with the, you know, do I really know what I should know to be successful here? Am I skilled enough, capable enough to do this? And these are all doubts that that I think at least I've had. And so putting yourself on a podcast, you know, am I exposing myself as a fraud, you know, and these types of things. Really? Okay. So that that is so I find that fascinating. And I I, I can remember kind of related to this being at a conference a long time ago, security conference. This was ShmooCon, uh, for those that used to go to that a long time ago, and thinking, how in the hell am I ever going to have something interesting enough to talk about at a conference, at any security conference? And really feeling like putting these folks that were speaking on a pedestal and putting myself far below that. And uh, it's something that I, I still deal with myself in some cases. And I get funny enough, get paid to speak now as part of my job and, and do it even on the side. But what I'm curious about for you is you mentioned feeling like a fraud, but this, even as the example of this podcast, I mean, this is really about your career journey and your, your feelings around leadership. No one can judge you for that. Your story is your story. So like, is there anything else that you're like, hey, I got this opportunity to be on this leadership podcast, but I'm kind of nervous about it. Like, what else was there or was that just it? Well, I think that, you know, again, I can't speak for most people, but I think that people do self-doubt, right? They question themselves. And that's why, again, I mentioned having such a great team and a knowledgeable team and building that trust is so critical. Being able to, dealing with a situation, an incident, or dealing with a strategic plan and whatever the case may be, you're able to sit down and have real open dialogue, conversation, beat around good ideas, bad ideas. And you finally come to a point where you find that path forward and you're doing that as a collective. But, you know, and as a leader, you're facilitating that, you're supporting that, you're pulling things out of people that may be the quiet person in, in the conversation that has the great idea, right? So to me, that's what our role is now, not being the one that's technically solving the problem, as I talked about earlier about getting in the weeds. But when you're on a podcast, I don't have my team with me. So you're a little bit more exposed, right? You, you don't know what question's coming up. You don't know how you're going to respond. And these cause some anxiety to some extent. And imposter syndrome, I think, in any career is, and if you're relatively new within that field, even though, listen, I've been dealing with security and doing security from some aspect or another for majority of my career. However, you kind of this new thing that creates that little bit self-doubt. You haven't been doing it for so long that you know it day in and day out. And if you're progressing your career, you're almost always in that state. But it also, I think, keeps you grounded to a certain extent as well. Sure. Well, I think having a little bit of imposter, some of that feeling that goes with imposter syndrome, I think is okay, as long as you don't self-limit your opportunities. Meaning, if you run into everything thinking, yep, I got this all figured out, that's ignorance or that's a very, that's a very sociopathic method of, of thinking and leadership. 
it's cool to say, hey, you know, I don't know. In fact, that's one of the greatest things I think a leader can get comfortable with saying and meaning. You know what? I don't have the answer to that right now, but we'll get that to you. Or I'm not sure. That kind of thing. And, and it took me ages to get comfortable with that. But I think it pairs also with what you said earlier. If it makes you a little bit uncomfortable, it's probably one of the right things to do. It's probably a developmental step. And when you get the next opportunity to speak or be at a, on a podcast or whatever, you're hopefully it's not going to be quite as scary, frankly. No, I, I agree. It's, it's you know, to your point, it's the element of being able to, to fail or be wrong and understanding that's part of humanity and it's what makes us grow and better and to own that. The other aspect of this is, like you said, it's kind of the getting familiar with the unknown. Again, just the podcast process. But to your point, though, you know, and being forcing yourself to be in uncomfortable situations, if I had not done the podcast, if I had said, you know, I'm sorry, it's not going to work for me or there's whatever the case may be, then that's to me is when the imposter syndrome is becoming. And to your point, it's debilitating. It's not beneficial. It's not keeping you grounded or providing you that more clear mind state of questioning what you're doing. Well, it kind of it not only can be a depressing thing, but it's sort of. I think where I think where you're going with this was it sort of begins to affirm in your mind that that imposter syndrome is is true and that well you know what I said no and I was busy but I probably could have done it but I didn't and I probably wasn't good enough to do it anyway and it probably would have made a mistake or I wouldn't have you know all these probabilities would you know come into your mind and that's that's what we need to make sure we collectively avoid and maybe more importantly make sure that we we avoid it, make sure that our, our staff and our friends avoid it as well, right? We look for those indicators. Well, and exactly. And, you know, at the end of the day, you got to look at it from the perspective of if I completely bombed this podcast, at least I've learned how to do the next one. So you don't know, you don't learn unless you do. Right. You, you, you had the chance to develop some of that muscle memory. Yeah, perfect. Now, thank you so much for sharing that. Adam, we've drawn to time, but I've got one more question here. Uh, for you, for those that listen on a regular basis, you'll know the question I'm about to ask. Pursuant to the name of our show, uh, the new CISO, Adam, what does being a new CISO mean to you? It's a great question. And I probably couldn't answer it uh, fully because I haven't quite fully figured it out myself. But what I have figured out thus far is, again, it's, it's establishing a strong team. It's establishing trust within your team and within the business collectively. Because without those elements, I don't see how you could be successful, especially with your partnerships with engineering, IT, uh, in our case, product development teams. Those relationships are, are critical. And if you're not able to influence and partner and you know, support, then I, I just don't see how you can claim success to any relative level of positive magnitude, right? So to me, those are the biggest elements of what it means to be a CISO and to establish that trust in everything that you're doing. Yeah. Well, and credit to you for saying that you're still figuring it out too. Adam, you've been a fantastic guest. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, thank you very much. It was a pleasure to be here. That is it for this episode of the new CISO. Thank you for listening. Check out more episodes on xbeam.com forward slash podcast. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to get brand new episodes first.